What up, what up, Meepsters? This is Ryan Rainbro, and if you're hearing this, that means you're about to listen to one of the 99 free episodes of the Meep Meep podcast available wherever you cast pods. But keep in mind that there are new and unreleased episodes of the show on patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. So you'll want to sign up there to hear future episodes and also other side projects like Choo Choo, the show about soundtracks and contribute suggestions for future episodes as well. Will I listen to your suggestion? <laughs> There's only one way to find out. Patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. Bye! Welcome to Meet Meet, the Roadrunner podcast, where we go through the albums of Roadrunner Records with the artists who made them and the musicians they influenced. Let's roll! What up, what up, Meepsters? I'm Ryan Rainbow, and welcome to 1997, the first day of the rest of your life. And we're kicking it off with arguably the most important release on Roadrunner that year, the self-titled debut from Coal Chamber. More like Gold Chamber, because this bad boy sold over 500,000 copies in the U.S. So who better qualified to tell us about the creation of it than Midas himself, the titular Amir of the Desert, Amir Rock. Amir, in addition to being a founding member of Orgy and still making noise with Julian Kay, also is a talented engineer and producer. So in the early days of Orgy's formation, he and Jay Gordon held the reins of the making of CC's ST for RR. So here's the story from before the beginning to the beginning of the end. Of course, the Cold Chamber album, I know that technically Jay Baumgardner is the producer, but I was always told that you were really the producer, you and Jay. So I thought it would be cool to talk to you about, you know, your history with them. And I know that you're kind of with Cold Chamber throughout there. It's an interesting story. Um, I can I can definitely shed some light on how what the process, <laughs> what the process was and the politics and uh, all of that. It was, it was pretty interesting. So how did you first uh, how did you first meet them just being in that same kind of L.A. rock scene? Yeah, um, basically what was going on back then is uh, Jay Gordon and I were starting to kind of develop some bands. <clears throat> and Jay Baumgartner owned an amazing studio who was uh, a very good friend of ours. And we had been doing some of our own demos and other things um, at his studio. And he was just building Studio B at the time, which is the sort of Moroccan room there. It's very famous um, now, but no one had actually recorded in there um, at the time. So JB was, he's, a, he's been an amazing friend and mentor. And he, you know, recognized that there was some talent in, in some of the individuals in our camp, including Josh Abraham who uh, also went on to become a very famous producer. So we had this little, this little group of guys, you know, we were all kind of coming up. I was probably the most technical of the bunch. I had had some uh, experience recording. I also have a degree in engineering from UCLA. Um, and I'd been kind of doing it since I was a kid, you know, so I had, I had a lot of experience already, but I wouldn't say that I was a pro or anything at that point. 
And Jay Baumgartner kind of took us under his wing and just said, look, you know, I've got this, this new room opening up here. Let's have some fun, you know, because I, I, I'm not going to be able to book it right away. You know, it's too new. People are not familiar with it. And at the time, you know, a room like that, that was all decorated. And I mean, it had this amazing Neve board. Of course, all the equipment was, you know, the best vintage and state-of-the-art new gear you could have because Jay's way on that. But he was like, let's have some fun. You guys, you know, find some bands, bring some bands in and let's develop some bands and see what happens. And during that time, we worked with System of a Down. Um, we did their demo that got them signed. But we were also creating Orgy at the time. Jay Gordon and I were, were starting to create Orgy as well. So we were kind of, you know, doing, trying a bunch of different things. And we got the opportunity from Roadrunner to do a demo for Cold Chamber. And so we, we went in and recorded um, the song Pig. So we went in um, to the new room there and recorded Pig and Monty Connor was just floored. And he said, look, we want to sign the band um, and we want you guys to produce it. So that's kind of how it got started. Now, of course, the actual process of making that record, you probably could have made a movie about it. <laughs> because, wow, there was a lot of crazy shit that went on. Well, that's what I want to hear about. I want to hear about yeah. the crazy shit. But I will say that I always thought that was interesting because I only found that out within the last few years that Pig was the song that got Cole Chambers signed just because I, of course, always assumed it would have been loco because i know that was kind of an early demo also yeah and i i don't yeah i don't think we did a another demo for that um you know we just ended up re-recording it their demos were definitely very they were almost kind of more industrial sounding which at the time i i really liked. i thought they were kind of cool <laughs> and i could see why you know monty was into it but I think the idea of going into this was that, you know, at the time the new metal thing was happening and we kind of, you know, we wanted these guys to kind of fit in with that so that they could ride that wave. The thing that really sticks out to me on this album sonically is that the bass tone seems like there's so much thought taken into consideration with that on each song. It's almost a little bit different, but always very deep. And it seems like the guitar is almost kind of like, a, I don't want to say an afterthought, but it's its a little bit more wild, whereas the bass seems like it's something that's really focused on, on the, throughout the album. Um, you know, it was all pretty much sculpted to work together. You know, the guitars, we actually used, um, funny enough, I have a like an old Gibson Les Paul gold top that is actually the guitar on oh, that wow. record, which a lot of people are surprised uh, because it is tuned down. They, they tune to, I think, B or something like that. It's pretty low, but I was able to intonate my guitar, um, this, this vintage gold top with P90s um, is what we used for the tone and, and some of my vintage uh, Marshall amps and a shit ton of my pedals to create all those wacky 
wacky guitar parts. Um, the bass was probably the same bass we used in Orgy. I'm, I'm almost 100% positive it's the Ibanez five string that we used in Orgy, which I still have and use even in Julian K these days. It was like the first Ibanez five string. <laughs> so those things sound amazing and they have a, an amazing bottom and an amazing top. It just, I don't, I've never heard anything that sounds like it. And I'm sure that's what we used with our, I'm sure with our typical GK uh, amp head and SVT cab. And uh, yeah, I mean, we, we really just went for that very kind of snappy, but thumpy uh, kind of bass tone. And again, it was really all of the same stuff we used in Orgy, but the trick with all of that is of course, you know, every band is different. Every musician is different. And depending on how it's applied, how it's played, and and what you do with the tone after it comes out of the bass. I mean, you listen to Orgy and you listen to Cold Chamber, and I'm telling you right now, it's the same exact rig. <laughs> yeah, because to me, Orgy is, doesn't even sound like it has a organic bass, like it sounds all synced out. Yeah, it's not. I mean, there's both. I mean, we did a lot of, you know, there's guitar synth, there's keyboard synth, there's bass synth <laughs> there's like all kinds of crazy shit going on but you know the majority of the bass in the orgy stuff was that exact same ibanez five string um, but of course it was run through pedals and distortion and you know whatever so it's like a completely different thing yeah that makes sense though right that, that that's just how it works it's what you do with the the actual sounds because it's almost also just who's playing it too right you hear yeah Totally. And like I said, it's it had a lot to do with the processing. Obviously, Orgy was a heavily processed band um, on the bass part of it, especially Cold Chamber, not so much. I mean, maybe we put some chorus or whatever, but really that was more just a straight five string bass through an amp. But, you know, every band is different. And a lot of the bands I work with, you know, over the years, I have so much different gear that I use guitars, bass, amps, all that. And I really try to sculpt all that for every band that I work with, whether it's my own or other bands, but you can do it with different gear. And sometimes you can use the same gear, but just depends on, you know, we probably didn't have a lot of stuff back then. And it was just kind of like, okay, well, this is pretty much the only base we have. Here you go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that was the case back then. I mean, I don't think we had a lot of options, but the good thing was we did know good sound from the beginning. Uh, Jay Gordon, Jay Baumgartner, and myself, we all had, you know, good ears of like, yeah, that sounds fucking great. There's no reason to change it. You know, we don't need to do anything else. That sounds amazing. So done. So Jay is kind of uh, facilitating the album, it sounds like, although, of course, he goes on to be uh, a big name in production not long after this album comes out. And I'm sure having yeah. his name on here doesn't uh, hurt well, JB, JB knew more about all of that than, than we did at that time. And yes, he was sort of not only a mentor, but almost like an executive producer where he, he was running his business and doing other things. So, you know, he wasn't always in there. Of course, he didn't spend the hours in there that I did. I probably spent more hours in there than anybody because these sessions most of the time ran all night, uh, like many, 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 many nights. Um, where it ran all night long. <laughs> it 
And we were lucky because JB owned the studio. And, and at the time, you know, like I said, this was a new room and he was being very gracious and was just like, look, don't break anything. But hey, you know, you guys can stay in here as long as you need to get it done. You know, how much involvement was uh, I would say the label, but I guess Monty specifically is the A&R for this album. So how much is he checking in and seeing what the progress is? Or is he kind of letting you guys do what you need to do and then listening to what you send them over? <clears throat> you know, I, I don't remember exactly in the beginning, but I, I, I remember that Monty used to have some some guys that he valued their, their ears, me being one of those people. And he used to sometimes send me into other sessions and be like Amir will you tell me do the guitars sound good <laughs> or whatever he was really funny so he would send his guys in to listen once in a while and just check back and you know tell them like oh yeah everything sounds really good and you know but I don't think he really heard stuff until it started getting you know more finished but it was it was a process I mean making that record was I've, I don't think I've ever made a record um, that was that difficult in the sense of how long it took and just how much shit was going on other than like an orgy record <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> other than my own band. So, but yeah, there was, <clears throat> there was a lot of fun stuff. I mean, there was crazy nights where we would close the curtains to the main room because there was stuff going on in there that, um, you know, <laughs> we, weren't supposed to be watching, but yet we'd be in the other room recording bass or doing whatever, and there'd be some craziness going on in the room behind curtains. So is that some of the things that are making this album take so long, or just kind of the uh, distractions, maybe? Um, that was probably part of it. I think, you know, it was their first record. I think, you know, we were, it was our really our first record, too, as in, in a lot of ways, as far as like being engineers, producers and all of that. And so we were really driving everything very hard because we wanted to raise the bar really high. And yeah, so we were, you know, it was, it was a struggle sometimes to get everything where it needed to go. But once they started hearing what it was sounding like and where it was going, everybody was just like, okay, we get it. Um, you know, because they'd never done anything like that before. Um, all of us at least had had some experience making records and doing this sort of thing. But I, I know for us that we really had a statement to make and we really wanted to make sure that this was as good as it possibly could be. And if that meant, you know, having many, many nights staying there until morning. I remember when the album was finished, I remember leaving it like eight in the morning, just thinking, oh my God, I never want to do this again. <laughs> That was my thought when I got in my car and I went home that morning. I'm like, I, I can't believe we actually finished this record. It was crazy. Without getting you into trouble or anything, what are some crazy stories you can tell me about the album? And then I have some questions about some specific songs. The the fun thing that we did is we had, a, we had an assistant, this girl named Lisa Lewis. She's also a very talented engineer herself. We had a DAT tape that we were rolling. So like there were a lot of like after hour parties, basically. So like with all the gear was set up, people would come in, you know, in the middle of the night, pretty much, you know, and jams would start. <laughs> so we started recording all the shenanigans 
I mean, I, you know, honestly, I haven't heard that, that thing in a while, but it's at the end of the record. And we basically just kind of cut all these little pieces of shenanigans, pieces of meltdowns, pieces of like goofing off, <laughs> like every, all these things we cut together. Do two takes for a camel. Take the guy out of the Elvis, but the Elvis won't come out of the guy, guy. Do it. Fuck you. I can't. I need a Coke. Fuck you. Monty was really receptive to having a lot of this type of stuff on the record, like, for example, A Mirror of the Desert. Um, that was just something we captured, you know. They were, like, screwing around in there, and they started doing that. And Monty's like, this has to be on the record. Like, it's just too... <laughs> This is, these are like golden moments. And I was just like, are you kidding me? Like, and he's like, no, no, I'm, I'm totally serious. And I said, all right, well, Hey, you know what? The band's all right with it. I am. I think it's hilarious. I mean, you know, now looking back on it, you're just like, wow. <laughs> but there were just so many, that's the kind of stuff. Like every night there was a party, you know, there'd be girls that would show up and then it would turn into an orgy, literally, you know, I mean, there was just partying and drinking and drugs and all kinds of stuff going on all night long. A lot of it, like I said, we would just close the curtains because we had to get the record done. <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, there was a record being made, regardless of all the shenanigans that were going on. But there were a lot of people that came by, you know, from other bands. I remember Chino from the Deftones came by and Elijah from Deadsy was there. I'm sure Jonathan probably came by from Corn, or I don't know. There was so many people. It was a good thing, though, because in the end of all of that, people got familiar with the studio and people really loved it. And a lot of those bands, a lot of those people ended up doing records in there after all of that. You know, Corn came in there and Limp Biscuit came in there. And JB's really smart. He, he understands all of that, you know, like he knows like the, the game of, you know, how it all works, getting people <clears throat> to come work in your studio and all the stuff that we did together, you know, just created a big buzz. I always tell JB that I'm, you know, super grateful for all the opportunities that he allowed me to have. Um, I actually interned there for a while just to even become more familiar with all the equipment and things like that. And he would always let me kind of do my own projects and bring my projects in when I needed to, just like Josh Abraham or Jay Gordon, or, you know, he had, like I said, a, there was a, a few of us that he really, really, really helped us all. And he's a great producer, great engineer. And, you know, none of it would have happened without him. I mean, he definitely had his hands and all that, but he also kind of let me do my thing and Jay Gordon, you know, do his thing. But Jay wasn't really technical. I, I did a lot more of the technical stuff me and JB did a lot more of the technical stuff. And that was some of my first real hands-on experience of mixing an actual record, you know? So Jay, G, <laughs> Jay Gordon would have been more of like the, the producer role in the sense of like, oh, let's try this with this chorus or something like that versus you are kind of finding the, the tones and the sound of it. It's funny, we, we really, yes, in one sense, yes, but we all kind of produced, you know, we all, depending on who was in the room, everybody trusted each other. So, you know, JB would walk in once in a while and be like, Hey, you know what, that part doesn't sound too good or whatever. You guys should probably fix that. 
or that part sounds great or whatever. Maybe you should overdub this. And then he'd go back out and I'd be in there making the decisions, you know, if no one else was around or Jay, Jay Gordon would come in, he would say, Hey, you know, that sounds cool, but let's do this on that. And then he would leave or whatever. But you know what I mean? Like we all kind of just, we had a really good relationship in that regard. You know, we all trusted each other and there really wasn't much like arguments about, you know, like anything. It was just like, Hey, it sounds good. That's cool. And didn't really matter who was in there. You know, I'm, I'm basically credited as an engineer on the record because they, because of the way the deal was structured and all of that. But, you know, I had a lot of hand in what that record sounds like as well and the production and arrangements. And, um, you know, I did actually go to their rehearsals and all of that stuff as well. So, you know, it was my way to get my foot in the door. Those guys actually brought the band in. JB offered the studio. So I was just like, yeah, I'll, I'll do whatever it takes. But, you know, I, it was great for me too, because I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to have my hands on all this gear and be able to cut tape. And we actually recorded that album on two inch tape. Oh, wow. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah. There was the only thing digital would have been happening in the mastering. So it was actually all analog, that record. <laughs> Man, just a crazy difference what a few years would make too, right? Just go from that comes out in 97. I'm sure Dark Days mm -hmm. has got to be all Pro Tools out, right? Yep. Crazy, right? I mean, it was it was fun for me because I got to be right in that transition. You know, I grew up in the world of analog, but when I actually started doing it myself, that was sort of the end of it. The death to analog. <laughs> so I was right at that transition. So it's cool because I have that skill um, and that experience there that I was able to transition over into the digital world and then learn that separately. But I still have kind of the best of both worlds. So I, I feel fortunate that I was in that era, you know? The demo for the song Loco specifically, you kind of mentioned earlier that it's um, got a more industrial feel. It's actually got like this double bass chorus yeah. to it versus the more like staccato, I guess for lack of a better word, uh, bounce that it would become known for so was that done in the studio or did they come to you with that idea like hey we want to change this song or are you guys kind of because that's a, that's the biggest difference between those demo songs and the the finished yeah, product i think again it was all about you know getting getting them into a sound that was going to fit the times and you know obviously we were listening to a lot of corn we were friends with corn um that whole kind of vibe, um, we were trying to not mimic it exactly, but bring that flavor into what they were doing so that it would be relevant for the time. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure at the time we probably thought double bass drums were not cool. <laughs> really just that simple and and i'm sure all of it was worked out in rehearsal you know whatever the arrangements and all of that and a lot of the drum parts though were worked out while we were recording we we did have that luxury which you know normally you would never have the time to do that but mikey really got a workout 
on the drums. You know, he really like at the end of that, I think he really became an amazing drummer. I mean, he was he was good already, but that was like he went to boot camp for drumming while we were making that record. And Jay Gordon definitely had a lot to do with that. Jay's actually, he's a great bass player. I mean, an amazing bass player, actually, and an amazing drummer. Um, not not as a live drummer, but his ideas, you know, as far as like beats and grooves and things like that. He's really good with that. And I actually learned a lot from him about all of that, you know, the grooves and how drums and bass work together. I learned a lot of that from from JG. And Mikey had like just joined the band right before the deal, right? What, they had another drummer prior uh -huh. to that? Yep. So he really, he was in the hot seat probably more than anybody. Well, Raina too. Raina really had to step up and she did. We had a joke that um, they, the band hates this, of course, but we did make everybody in the band cry at least once. <laughs> well, yeah, you said there were no arguments uh, that you guys had, but I think you meant between you, Jay, and Jay, but I got to right. imagine between you and the band, there had to be some sort of conflict just knowing those big personalities that are involved in this group. Yeah, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't too difficult. I, maybe not so much with me. I know with Jay Gordon and Des, they, they definitely clashed quite a few times during the process. I do remember a pretty good one with Jay Gordon and Des, where they were kind of not talking to each other for a bit. And I don't even remember what it was about. I don't <laughs> even know what happened exactly. Just probably but, yeah. a lot of time together, right? And that close proximity, just yeah. tension's going to build. Yeah, I'm sure, you know, that's what I was just going to say is, you know, a lot of good stuff comes out of drama and tension and, you know, you got to, during any record, there's always going to be some fights, there's going to be, you know, problems and the end product kind of shows that all of it was worth it and whatever happened, it all happened for a reason and it's typical, you know, when you when you get a lot of creative people together, like you said, in a very small space, which back then, you know, we were all stuck in this place for quite some time. I mean, you know, it, it did take a lot longer than it was supposed to. I think we were supposed to, you know, make the record in probably a couple of weeks. And I think it ended up taking at least a month or two to make the record. And the label has no budgetary issues with this because Jay owns the studio? Yeah, basically, Jay just said, I'll do it for this. We all just said, we'll do it for this, what they presented. And, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, again, we were trying, we wanted to get our foot in the door. So we were willing to, to go many, many extra hours and miles to, to make this record be what it needed to be. Growing up for me, Raina was so important to be a part of the band because she was one of the few, of course, girls in a popular band i'm sure there were plenty of girls in bands so i'm no, not trying to disrespect any of that but you know growing yeah. up there was amy echo and there was reina like that was it so i imagine that there was a lot of pressure for her being that kind of that uh representative for girls that liked heavy music and things like that but do you think there was a lot of pressure for her being in the band in that group of people on this album to to deliver to make sure that she's not dropping the ball for that kind of big pedestal that she's going to be put on for being such yeah. a minority yeah i mean definitely it was it was rough and she was very young but she you know she stepped up i mean we we were all pretty hard on that you know because we knew what it needed to be and 
and it, and it took time. We took the time though. Like I said, you know, had we really been restricted to the, the hours and all of that, I don't know how we would have done it, you know, but we, we took the time to make it happen and realize we weren't working in pro tools for any of this. It all had to be punched in on tape and edited the punch in. So, you know, you had to actually play the parts, you know, like there's no finessing, moving things around or anything like that. You actually had to be able to play the parts. And we, we wanted to make sure that when they went out there, that they were a much better band, you know, that they were like up to the level that we created and they were. It's so crazy that you keep on mentioning the uh, the recording the tape only because I know it's been a long time. So I don't know the last time you heard this record, but I listened to it yesterday, you know, because I knew I was going to talk to you about it. And it does sound so like dirty and you can hear even like pops and things like that on it. But mm -hmm. of course, that gives it a character and it makes sense. Now you telling me that it was done to tape that, you know, that's all part of the organic process of making it. Yeah, it was fun, too, because even the automation on the board, you know, this was old school. These were Neves with flying faders where you, you know, to do the mutes and stuff, you had to hold all the little red buttons and, you know, <laughs> turn them. So like, for example, one of the things that was really hard was the mutes on loco for the guitars, because the guitars are like, dun, 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 dun. those are all muted by hand in between each riff. Just so <laughs> there's no like feedback in between each noise. Yeah. Because the amps were pretty noisy. You know, like my modded amps were cranked and, you know, you would, we wanted that effect of the guitars to be like a machine, right? Where it's like, dun, 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 you know, like how they are. And you can only get that by, by literally muting them. But remember, this is no Pro Tools. So you had to do this manually on the board, right? It would remember it once you did it. But each one was a little bit different and you know to get it to feel right where it didn't sound chopped off or you had it took a long time to get those mutes right <laughs> yeah that's crazy and it makes total sense too because even throughout the rest of that song you can kind of, i mean that's half of the character of the songs there's just like noise and feedback going on so it makes sense that i was actually rerunning the guitars through mic pre's uh through the mic inputs on the neves which is really a no-no because you'll fry them eventually. But what it does <laughs> is it adds, it adds this layer of distortion, um, but it's very noisy. So that was also in there as well. And so it's probably part of the reason why everything needed to be so muted and so tight, but without what I was doing by doing that, um, it, you know, the guitars wouldn't sound quite as aggressive as they do. That was a little trick that I was doing and it was probably the first time I ever did it. And everybody was like, oh my God, that sounds so good. But I think I fried a couple of those <laughs> Neve modules and the studio tech was not happy with me because they, they, I kept burning out the, the modules. Well, they definitely sound mean as hell, like on big truck when that, you know, chorus for lack of a better term comes in, it definitely just sounds like it's being a truck is running me over so I, it was worth worth the uh the frying of those For it's sure. funny too because on that song there's a sample that i added in and i can't remember how i created that but there was there's a sound that i call it the big truck 
where it's like he says big truck and you hear this like raw 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 sound. I was gonna ask you, it's like that. Yeah, it's like this weird like mumbling almost. It sounds like underneath. Yeah, and I, don't, I honestly I can't remember how we created that, but it was a sample because remember again no Pro Tools, so we actually I think I used the AMS or the TC electronic delay to sample a sound and then pitched it down and then flew it in like manually played those little sounds in and recorded them. <laughs> That's even funny. Cause I really, I was going to say like, did, was this your attempt at like having like DJ scratching or something, but it's a sample that you are importing into the. Into yeah, the no, I, I, I made it. I, I don't remember how that came about, but I loved that song. That was like one of my favorite songs. And I thought I was doing something and I just was like that. It just sounds like a big truck to me, like a big machine, you know? And so I just kind of flew it in there. Yeah, and they have that kind of compilation they put out, I guess it was a long time ago at this point, but it has a remix of Big Truck, and that sample is like way up in the mix, so you can really hear it. We did that remix. Oh, okay, well, there you go. <laughs> yeah, that was like a fun thing that we, Monty used to get us to do like alternate versions of the songs. And so, cause we were, I think at that point we were already kind of doing the orgy thing and he was really loving. He actually wanted to sign orgy. He was one of the first people who came to the table with an offer for orgy, which at that time was just Jay and myself um, and probably Ryan too at that point. And um, anyway, um, yeah. So he was like, yeah, why don't you guys just kind of like you know, make it a little weirder, or add some keyboards or whatever. And like, so we would go in and like do these alternate versions. I know we did Sway. I can't remember what else we did, but we, we did a, a few like alternates. The Sway one's really interesting because the chorus has uh, Des kind of do more of like a sing-songy. Yep. Sway thing, and that's, that was us kind of trying to influence you know, what we were doing, we were influencing a little bit of that on, on them. And also, I think you can really hear that on the second full chamber record. Um, although Josh ended up producing that, JB and I mixed that record. Um, you can really hear the orgy influence on, on that record. Yeah, for sure. Especially on like, uh, even like El Kakoi, it even has like almost like synthy it sounds like the guitar sounds like it has like a an effect on it that would that orgy would use yeah i mean we we actually did a lot of stuff even in the mixing um jb and i ended up becoming kind of a team after that first record where we just started doing projects together he was getting offered records and he was bringing me in on it which was amazing and i got to be the co-producer engineer and mixer so we just did everything together yeah, I was going to ask you too, um, and you kind of touched on it. If if you ever had the thought of going to Roadrunner, because you're involved, you know, personally, and of course, this the Spine Shank, the first Spine Shank record, uh, years later, much year, much longer, you do the the Red Tape album. Yeah. So I didn't know if there was already, and you're saying, you know, you and Monty Connor clearly have some pretty good relationship, where you're his uh, eyes and ears in other projects. So it's interesting that Orgy. Well, not I. I mean, I know that you got what was it Elementary that you first signed to. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I know that Jonathan Davis having that, you know, Corn being the biggest band well, the, at the time. Yeah. The, I mean, honestly, the Roadrunner deal was very, uh, it was a great deal, 
actually. Um, but you know, when Corn came in and said, "Look, we're going to give you even more, and you're going to get to tour with us," and you know, all this other stuff, we were kind of like, "Fuck, can't really <laughs> pass that up." Oh yeah, I forgot the Family Values tour, right? You guys did yeah. that in '98, so yeah. I mean that that card still comes into play. Julian Kay toured with Jonathan Davis a couple years ago. You know, he's he picked us, handpicked us and the birthday massacre to go with him. So oh man, you know, that's that's the gift that is still giving for us. Have you yeah. ever done stuff with the birthday massacre? Um, I have not produced anything, but we're actually collaborating on a song together. Yes. Oh man, I love the birthday massacre. I mean, I love Julian K too, which I have a story about once we get through this. But uh, uh, the birthday massacre were a band that I avoided for a long time because that name is so terrible. I finally listened to them, and I was like, "Oh, it's so good." Yeah, no, you know, Monty and I had a great relationship, and um, you know, I probably would have had more opportunities, but I got so busy with Orgy um, that I actually had to turn down producing the second Spine Shank record. I would have actually produced that record. Um, I started the record. I was I was actually producing the record initially, and did all the pre-production for all the songs. So all the you know the way the songs are arranged, the beats, the everything. Um, I had my hand in that. And so um, I actually get a I have a special credit on that record for that. Um, but I had to hand the record off because I had to go on tour and be a famous rock star with Orgy. <laughs> And the same thing happened with uh, that third Cold Chamber record. Um, Monty actually wanted me to produce that one. And it was the same thing happened. I ended up starting pre-production and did all the, you know, basically got them back together because they were a disaster at that point. So I was able to pull the band back together, get them in the studio, get them writing. And out of all those sessions, we ended up pulling the single together. Fiend? Yeah, yeah, Fiend which was actually a baseline that Raina came up with, which was amazing. So, you know, she had really come a long way at that point and she really drove that song. And then we also came up with the idea of doing the cover. Robo? Yes, which was my friend's band. Uh, an old friend of mine, well, I used to be in a band called Jailhouse in the 80s and the singer was the singer in Flood, that band. And that record never came out. And I always thought, God, it's such a great record. And there were a whole bunch of my friends actually in that band. And Des had, was listening to it one night when we were working on that record. And um, we heard that song and we were like, what? Would you guys ever consider like covering this song? <laughs> like that's, it sounds like something you guys would do. And, and Ross Hogarth did an amazing job of the record. Yeah, Dark Days is, is pretty incredible. Dark Day, I mean, like you said, we're digressing here, but Dark Days out of the three is kind of the most uh, cohesive and least monotonous of the three, mm -hmm. you know? Um, of course, the first one is classic because it's the first one, but a, you know, a few of those songs sound a little bit similar. I don't think you would disagree with that. Yeah. And then the second one, they're kind of trying some new stuff and a lot of it works, but some of it is things that they didn't try again for a reason. And then yeah. the third one just kind of sounds like everything came together. The learning experiences of those first two. Yeah, totally. And I even thought that new record they put out sounded great. Oh yeah. When that, when that single came out, the I owe you nothing, I was like, Oh, this is cause it has that cool, like harmonic on the guitar. Yeah. You know what I'm talking yeah. about? Oh, so sick. Yeah. Miguel's a great guitar player. He, he really shined right from the very beginning. 
Well, I was going to ask you that about him specifically. Miguel is Meeks. That's his real name. Mm -hmm. Okay, sorry. Uh, mm -hmm. Because I was always told that he is like a like a college educated musician, like that he has like a degree in music or something like that. And then, of course, the Cold Chamber album stays pretty close to the same mode and notes and everything. So were there ever any like kind of crazy things that he brought up that just like wouldn't have worked in the the environment that you were trying to create? I don't know. You know, we we like weird. So, <laughs> so. you know, I, I think, you know, it was great. You know, from the very beginning, he was he, he was great, you know, and he had a lot of good ideas and we worked really well together. You know, like I said, I had you know, really kind of created the tone, but, you know, we had all these pedals and we were always experimenting and trying stuff. And, um, it, we just really worked well together. You know, it just gelled perfectly. I thought, you know, we, we started, this is very typical of the way that I will record, you know, we'll start with drums and guitar. If it's a guitar based band, I typically will always record drums and guitar first. I really like the guitar to lock in with the drums and then put the bass in, which is kind of backwards to the old school way of, you know, it used to be bass and drums and it depends on the band, but most of the time that's the way that I record. So all that gets kind of created the even the doubles of the guitars and everything. So this wall of sound is there, the drums are there, and then you get the bass in. Well, I guess, especially with a band like Cold Chamber, where you're really, you know, the, the focus of those songs are those, you know, pummeling staccato guitar parts. I know I keep yeah. on saying that word. It's my one musical word. I know staccato. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I took 20 years of piano lessons. I learned staccato and crescendo. But, uh, you know, <laughs> whether it's just it's kind of, you know, doing that that pummeling uh, riff in most of the songs. So it makes sense that you'd want to lock that in first. And then, of course, you can you can fill the bass in. And if you have that locked in, then putting the bass over top of it's not going to be an issue. So that, that makes sense to me. But like you said, certainly kind of uh, counterintuitive to normally you do the rhythm section and then the guitar comes in. Yeah, that's kind of the old school way. But I think, at least for me, any time when the, it's guitar driven, like the band is really guitar driven musically, I always do it that way. You mentioned that like, uh, you know, the kind of the end of the album is those like weird little funny outtakes and things like that. I always wondered, is the beginning of Sway, was that initially just like a, a rough idea and then it just ended up being the actual song? The roof, the roof, the roof is on fire. We don't need no water, let the motherfucker burn. Burn, motherfucker, burn! Oh, no, actually, that I'm pretty sure that was in the original demo that they, the Dez was doing that somewhere in the song. I don't know if it started that way. But I'm pretty sure that Roof is on Fire part was in the original demo. I, I could be wrong, but I feel like I'm right. No, you're right. You're definitely right. Okay. I just thought that you were there for that demo. I just, it always, to me, I, especially that year, you know, Bloodhound Gang even has Fire, Water, Burn, which also started mm -hmm. with the Roof is on Fire. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know if, you know, you do these like rough tracks and, and things to just kind of get vocal ideas. And then maybe you'll come back and change the words. So you just put like nonsense words. I think that part, you know, it was... There, you know, obviously there's a little bit of that uh, edgy sort of almost hip hop vibe when you start to go back and <clears throat> you borrow something. I mean, obviously we weren't sampling it. He was covering it basically, but we always liked it. You know, we always just thought that's really cool. Like it's just, it's a hook, you know, because really that's the hook of the song. 
Oh, yeah. No, I mean, it definitely works. It's iconic and a, a huge song for them even to this day. I just uh, didn't know if that is how it started or if um, it just became that on accident. You know, just sometimes things like that happen. You know, of course, this album is is super successful. It's even gone gold. It's an iconic album in both Roadrunner's history, Cold Chambers, heavy musics. But you being a technical guy and someone that I feel like is probably a, a perfectionist, especially with your personal projects, is there anything that you would change or do differently looking back on that album? Um, absolutely not. It's funny when you say all that, it reminded me of a story too. This, this you'll, I think you'll find interesting. Okay. So when the record did finally get done, like I said, I remember leaving the studio at eight in the morning and thinking, oh my God, I never want to hear this record again. I never want to do this again, all of this shit. Well, then the mastering uh, conundrum started. And basically at that point, like both the J's were kind of done and Monty was like, look, you know, we went to this mastering guy, which was, I think at the time was JB's. Well, we had a few different people that we all were kind of gravitating towards for the mastering of the record. And the guy that we ended up using, who is an amazing mastering guy, did a mastering for it. And Monty was kind of like, I don't know, you know, I don't know if I like, you know, it just didn't really do enough. And so the other guys were kind of like, they were kind of done. So Monty said, look, will you help me see this through to the end? And I said, of course I will. So we went and we had someone else master it. I think maybe even a couple people did some test masterings. I was the one who kind of went, because back then you actually would go to the place, you know, and you would sit there with the guy and all that. So I, I was the one who went and followed up on all of that stuff, wearing my producer hat at that point, I guess. So we, we had some other masterings done and I went home and, you know, the other guys were like, I like the first mastering, you know, he really didn't change it that much from what we originally had. And I totally disagreed. You know, I went home and I listened to all the masterings on a boombox that I had. And I was like, you know what, this one, this one gets me excited. When I listen to the other one, I'm like, yeah, it kind of sounds like what we did, but this one takes it to another level. <laughs> And to me, that's what it needed to do, you know? And so Monty, I, I told Monty, I said, look, I, I think we should go with this mastering. And he allowed me to make that decision. The other guys allowed me to make that decision. I'm not sure whether the band was involved in that or not. I don't even remember, but I know the two J's were kind of like, we don't care anymore. Like they were just done. <laughs> they, were, they were done at that point. And I was just like, yeah, but I don't know. You know, I know this one sounds pristine, but this one, like there's some attitude here. It just flies out of the, flies out of my boom box. You know, it's like, no one's going to be listening to it in a studio. They're going to be listening to it in their car and on a boom box. And so Monty and I agreed on that. <clears throat> and that ended up being the final mastering. And again, I'm, I don't regret that. You know, I'm glad that we went that extra mile because, I, again, I feel like it, it did. It took it to another level of aggressiveness. Um, it was it took away some of the perfection, maybe, in the sound that it was it was kind of cleaner and a little more open and all that. But this just kind of focused it and made it more aggressive. And I think that we made the right decision. Have to agree. I think history agrees with you as well. So that's really cool that uh, you got to really be from not even before the beginning <laughs> all the way yeah. to the end of it. So that's that's incredible. 
Yeah, it was, you know, like I said, I'm grateful to all all involved, you know, from Monty trusting me, for Jay and Jay for giving me, you know, the reins many times during the project. I'm very proud of what what we all did together and happy that it was successful and that those guys still are doing stuff. It's amazing. Thanks to Amir for taking the time to relive history with us. He hasn't stopped making it, though, as Julian Kay just released a collaboration with the Annex called Your Lives Are Like Fire, which you can hear wherever you stream music, but take the time to watch the video on YouTube because it's a really incredible visual experience. And for more visions, go to patreon.com slash for all kinds of cool behind-the-scenes stuff of their whole career. And finally, the other half of Julian K, Ryan Shuck, who was also an orgy, is now the singer for Adema, my old pals from Arista Records. And Amir is producing their new album. So there's lots of sights and sounds for you coming up from that whole camp. And speaking of camping, I've got some more episodes coming for you every week. And isn't that fun? So why not go to patreon.com slash meetmeepod and contribute to the cause? Hey, why not go on Instagram and follow me at meetmeepod? Or why not just tell a friend about the show so that we can all hang out together? I'm Ryan Rainbow. This is Meet Meep. And yes, that's the best I could come up with. Bye.